You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Happy Tuesday to you, and thank you for making Locked On Bills your first listen every day. It's time for Herd Mentality on the podcast, the episode each week where you take control of the discussion and submit questions, comments, takes, whatever you have regarding the Buffalo Bills, and I respond to them here on the podcast. And folks, we have a ton to get to today, and in fact, there's going to be some I won't be able to get to just because we had so many good questions coming in and uh, I'm supposed to keep these podcasts to 28 to 32 minutes, and so I'll do my best to get to as many as I possibly can here. First one comes from Noah. Noah says, do you have any thoughts or data on how Trey White has been this year? You've spoken a lot on Matt Milano, Taron Johnson, Poyer Hyde, the D-line, Edmonds, and the potentially upgradable CB2 spot in Levi Wallace, but I haven't heard Trey's name a ton. Is this because he's just not being thrown at, or has his play just not been as good? I know he doesn't allow much, but it seems like everyone is getting in on the turnovers but him. I think he had one against the Washington football team. Let me know your thoughts and thank you. Trey White's playing great this year. If I had three pieces of data to point to that encapsulates how good he has been, here they are. Number one, he's allowed a passer rating of 65 against his coverage, which is sixth best in the NFL among cornerbacks that have played at least 200 snaps in coverage. Number two, he's allowing a reception percentage of 51.1 when he's targeted, which is also sixth best amongst cornerbacks with at least 200 snaps played in coverage. And he's played 291 coverage snaps and has yet to allow a touchdown reception this year, and he's the only cornerback with more than 270 coverage snaps to not have allowed a touchdown yet on the season, and that includes 29 cornerbacks that qualify. Trey White is a lockdown corner. He continues to be a lockdown corner. Now, I do take exception with some of his tackling efforts. His missed tackle rate is over 20% right now, but in coverage, this guy has been outstanding. The next one today comes from Danny. Danny has a couple of good questions. The first one is one that has come from many different people, And it is, why do we have to have the punter hold for field goals? I just don't understand why we had to get rid of a great power punter just because he's bad at holding for kicks. I feel like we went from having a top three punter to a bottom five punter all because he can't turn the laces out. Couldn't we just find someone else to be the holder? So it's a good question, and I've gotten this from a lot of people, so a lot of people are definitely thinking about this. And so the way that I would answer this is, simply because you need those other players to practice their normal positions and they're more injury prone. And so if you ask a receiver to come and be a holder, it's taking away from their practice time at receiver and they could get injured and therefore you would lose your holder. The likelihood of a punter getting injured is less. And the other really important dynamic here is that kickers and punters and long snappers, they're a tight group of people. It's like a little fraternity that they have going on. They do everything together every single day. Obviously, they're not 
as involved in practices because they're not doing as much as a offensive lineman or a cornerback or a linebacker. They have a lot more time on their hands. They spend a lot of time together. There's really good chemistry that exists between your kicker, punter, and long snapper. And because they're such a tight-knit group, they just have this very natural chemistry together. There's no substitute for that chemistry. And furthermore, I asked Jake Arians, former Buffalo Bills kicker, son of Buccaneers head coach Bruce Arians, for a little bit of feedback on this uh, on Twitter, and this is what he said. My question to Jake was, I'm getting this question a lot from Bills fans. Can you offer a little insight on the dynamics of the holder and how it's best for that guy to be the punter? I know that wasn't the case for you, and it was detrimental to your career. You know, when Jake Arians got a chance to be the kicker for the Bills, his holder was Jay Reemersma. And he's told me some stories about Jay Reemersma and how bad of a holder he was and how he just didn't have any consistency. And, you know, he'd be blocking and his fingers were bloody uh, from, you know, mixing it up in in the trenches. And now he's got a hold for a field goal. It's a weird situation. And this is what Jake said on Twitter. And I retweeted this on the uh, Lockdown Bills account as well as my personal account. This is what Jake said. It's huge. Not a lot of punters on the street for one, so upgrading is tough. But downgrading the holder for a small upgrade at punter is ludicrous, especially when Bass is kicking so well. Continuity is important. The other question from Danny was, I've really been thinking about why I'm so disappointed when the Bills lose. In the past, it used to annoy me when we lost, but these last few years, I've been taking our losses a lot harder. Then it hit me. In past years, I handled losses much better because I expected them. I always knew we had an average to below average team, so my expectations were low. But now we have a top 10 roster with a top three quarterback and a competent coaching staff. Because of this, I expect more. Because of this, I hold us to a higher standard. My oldest daughter makes straight A's. When she takes a test and gets a C as her grade, I'm disappointed. Not because a C is a terrible grade but because I know she's easily capable of getting an A. I like your thoughts on this. So Danny, everyone's going to process these things differently and they're going to handle them differently. And I think your logic is really good. However, I see it very differently. For me, because this team is so good, a top roster, top quarterback, really good coaching staff, I don't really sweat the losses because I know what they're capable of. I know that It's a blip on the radar and that they have more opportunities to prove what they are as a football team. And I'm confident in the direction that they're heading and that losses aren't going to sink this football team. I know that at the end of the day, they're still going to win 11, 12, 13 games. And that makes it a lot easier for me to process. And so I guess I see it the exact opposite that you do. And my comfort comes in knowing that This is a really good football team, and I trust that they will correct what they need to correct. The next one today comes from Justin. Justin says, what is your take on the overall performance of the offensive line over the course of the season, and does Josh Allen's evasion skills mask deficiencies of the pass blocking of the offensive line? So I think the Bills have an average to slightly below average offensive line. It's not terrible. It's definitely not dominant. When you look at pro football focus and their grades, they have the Bills ranked 18th in the NFL in pass blocking, 23rd in run blocking. And I think that checks out based on the way I feel about 
watching the Bills' offensive line and comparing it to other teams and where they have them slotted. Slightly below average. And I think the biggest issue comes at guard, particularly left guard. I'm really comfortable with Spencer Brown at right tackle, and I think Daryl Williams is going to be really good at guard. I love Mitch Morse at center. I love Dawkins at left tackle. But between that left guard spot being unsettled and, and this is important, the Bills having four different offensive line combinations in seven games, I think you've seen some inconsistency. And so I think they have a left guard problem and they have a continuity problem that is prohibiting this team to being average to slightly above average when it comes to their offensive line. But it's far from a dominant group. It's far from a group that you can really lean on to create movement in the run game. And um, if you want to be a two-dimensional offense, you better find some guys up front that can create some space. Or you need to find more dynamic options to carry the football. Or better yet, both. So uh, I think the Bills have an obvious area of the team that they can get better at. The next one today comes from Jerry. Jerry says, have a herd mentality question for you. So the third year always seems to be the breakout year for players that Brandon Bean drafts. Do you think Gabriel Davis will have his breakout year next year and be able to almost take over the role that Emmanuel Sanders plays in the offense currently? Also, if Frazier and Dable got poached in the offseason, who do you think would be worthy candidates to take the coordinator roles? I'll be honest with you. I think you'll see two internal promotions, Ken Dorsey to OC, and um, as far as defensive coordinator, either Jim O'Neill or Eric Washington, or maybe Bob Babich. I think it'll be internal guys that get promoted. Now, your question about breakout players, Gabriel Davis, year three. I don't not like Gabriel Davis. Let me establish that right off the bat. I think Gabriel Davis is a very good number four receiver. If you can manufacture some throws for him, put him in motion, allow him to take advantage of space and some natural picks, he performs. In the scramble drill, his ball skills and size shows up down the field. Gabriel Davis just isn't a complete receiver. He does not win in the same ways or even close to the same ways that Emmanuel Sanders does. They're very different football players. Davis doesn't give you that dynamic route running ability. He doesn't give you yards after catch ability. He doesn't give you the ability to beat tight coverage and uncover quickly in quick game. Gabe Davis is a number four receiver. I think the Bills need to always prioritize having a dominant number one like Steph Diggs, a do-everything number two, a slot player like Cole Beasley, and a number four like Gabriel Davis that gives you that size and ball skills and versatility to move around the formation and take advantage of space. So those complementary skill sets working together is what makes this Bills passing offense really, really good. And so when you force that number four player like a Gabriel Davis and his skill set into the number two role, I think you get away from those complementary skill sets and what you really need for this passing game to be the best version of itself. So I like Gabriel Davis, but I like him for that number four role. He's far from proven to me that he's worthy of consideration for that number two job. I just don't think he has that type of skill set 
that is a do-everything guy to really compliment Diggs. I think he's a number four. The next one today comes from Steve. Steve says, you mentioned in the past that you were excited to take your wife to a Bills home game and show her the full mafia experience, hoping in part to speed along her conversion into full Bills fandom. Having since attended the home game against Houston, can you give us an update on this front? So Steve, I showed my wife your question. And she stood next to me and looked at my computer and read it. And she paused and she smiled and she said the following, quote, my passion for the Bills is coming very close to the passion that I have for the Carolina Panthers. And so I think we are definitely getting somewhere. And we're going back to Buffalo for the Carolina game in December. And I told her, you'll know, you'll know when you're in that stadium and you see both teams on the field, you'll know where your primary allegiance lies. I'm telling you, she's really enjoying this Bills football team. She's enjoying watching the games with me and uh, talking about the team. And so we're definitely coming close to tipping the scales. She loves the Panthers. I know she loves the Panthers. But it's really easy to jump on the bandwagon, if you will, for this Bills team. And they're playing really good. They're a fun team to watch. And I think she's really enjoying it being something that we are enjoying together. So we're, we're, we're getting there, folks. We're definitely getting there. Uh, Steve had a follow-up question. He said, also, you've talked about the importance of Emmanuel Sanders to the Bills offense and the need to potentially replace him next year. What are your thoughts about potentially adding a true height-weight speed guy? Bean has said in the past that not every team needs one of those guys because they are so hard to find. And as it turns out, they have built a prolific offense without one. That said, do you think this would open up a new dynamic of our offense and or play better or worse into Josh's talents and development as a quarterback? Bringing in receivers who can separate has been a big part of Josh's development, but just seeing what kind of mismatches guys like A.J. Brown and D.K. Metcalf pose makes me want this for the Bills. Yeah, I'm definitely not opposed to it. And you know that I love DK Metcalf. I wanted the Bills to draft him in the first round. And so having a height, weight, speed guy, man, I think that'd be great for the Bills offense. A guy that can truly win down the field with their ability to run away from coverage and go get the football. A guy that can be imposing and physical after the catch. Yeah, I'm not going to say no to that at all. I do think that it's going to be important for the Bills to make sure that they have separation guys like a Diggs, like a Cole Beasley. But if you were to insert a DK Metcalf-type talent as wide receiver too, man, you're going to force that defense to make some choices. And right now they've already got a lot of choices, and um, the Bills can make you wrong with the ways they can challenge you in the passing game. So... Yeah, I'm definitely not opposed to this idea of a height, weight, speed guy for Josh Allen, uh, you know, starting next year. Hey, Bills fans, this is Joe Marino with an incredible app everyone who buys gas needs to know about. Get Upside. My listeners are making up to 25 cents for every gallon of gas every time they fill up. Just download the free Get Upside app in the App Store or Google Play right now and use promo code TOUCHDOWN and get a bonus 25 cents per gallon on your first fill up. That's up to 50 cents cash back. Don't pay full price at the pump anymore. Get cash back using Get Upside. 
Just download the app for free and use promo code TOUCHDOWN to get up to 50 cents per gallon cash back on your first tank. Some people who drive a lot are making as much as two to $300 a month in cash back and there's no catch. The cash back gets added right to your account and you can cash out anytime to your bank account, PayPal, or an e-gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free GetUpside app and use promo code TOUCHDOWN. Have you ever tried to scoop that last bit of salsa out of a bowl and right at the last pivotal moment, the chip breaks, the chip disappears into the salsa, your hand plunges deeper into the bowl and you're left with the dreaded salsa knuckles? When you're stressing about whether or not we should go for it on fourth down, it's the last thing you need. Well, I have a solution for you. Zach's Mighty Tortilla Chips knows that the purpose of a tortilla chip is to successfully deliver dips from the bowl to your mouth in one delicious piece. Their chips are sturdy, corny, and live to keep your knuckles clean. That's because their chips are cut and fried from real tortillas, while most chips on the shelf skip this step. On top of that, their delicious flint corn is organically grown in the Buffalo, Rochester area. So pick up a bag at your local Wegmans or Whole Foods Market today and say no to weak and crappy tortilla chips forever. The next one today comes from Chris, who says, We heard about Jake Kumaro and Isaiah McKenzie all training camp. Everyone was impressed with their performance. Kumaro making catches regularly. McKenzie's route running and separation was Beasley-esque. But we haven't seen much from them yet this season. Is it possible they're saving them for later use and serving a role in the offense? I could be overthinking it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on how quiet they have been in the offense. It's a good question, Chris. And, you know, every time I get a question about McKinsey or Kumaro, I remind myself of questions that I get about Steph Diggs and Emmanuel Sanders and Cole Beasley and how there are times that they aren't a very prominent piece of the offense, not to mention Gabriel Davis. And the reality is you're only going to play like three or four wide receivers on any given snap. And so there's just not enough reps for all of these guys to truly contribute within the offense. And the Bills have been very fortunate to not have many injuries at all as a football team. And the wide receiver core has been really healthy. And so are you going to take Diggs or Sanders or Beasley or Davis off the field so that Kumaro and McKinsey can get some run? I wouldn't. And Kumaro does play some on offense. Usually he's in there to block, but he does get some reps. And we also have to keep in mind that both Kumaro and McKinsey are major Factors on special teams. I mean, Isaiah McKenzie has his hands full right now figuring out how to be a returner in the NFL. Jake Kumaro has a critical role covering kicks and punts and blocking for kicks and punts. And so those guys are contributing to the football team. It's just not necessarily at wide receiver. And I just couldn't imagine a scenario where those guys are going to get run over Diggs, Sanders, Beasley, or Davis. Next one comes from Eric who says, Like everyone, I'm singing the songs of victory, and Beasley was a big part of it today. We as Bills fans can sense the absolute powerhouse that he represents out of the slot. Would you do a favor for me and do a comprehensive analysis comparing Beasley to some of the top slot receivers over the past five years? I leave it to you how to best compare or frame the analysis. So listen, it's not easy to sort the slot receiving data over a large sample size. But what I can do is give you the last two years. And so this year so far, Cole Beasley is second in the league in receptions from the slot with 36 behind Cooper Cup, 
who has 43, but let's also keep in mind that Cooper Cup has played eight games and Cole Beasley has played seven. So he's been right there in terms of the most productive slot receiver in the NFL so far this year, which includes a couple of games where he was pretty quiet. Then last year, 2020, Cole Beasley had 948 yards receiving from the slot, which was the most in the NFL. Second was C.D. Lamb at 877. Tyler Boyd was next at 739. I mean, Cole Beasley, and that was in 15 games as well. C.D. Lamb played 16 games. And so Cole Beasley over the last two years has been the most productive slot receiver in the NFL. He's the best slot receiver in the NFL. Holinka says, it struck me as I was watching Aaron Rodgers lead the Packers offense on Thursday night. If you look at the great quarterbacks of this most recent generation, and he references Brady, Manning, Breeze, and Rodgers, part of their late career mastery was managing the running game at the line of scrimmage. How often did we see Brady lead a late drive against the Bills, sprinkling in power runs to keep the defense honest? And it was never done with exceptional running backs either. This feels like a part of the Bills offense that is still lacking despite some impressive statistical efficiency for Devin Singletary this year. Late game, it's just all Josh all the time. Curious if you see that as a growth opportunity for the Bills. Yeah, I do. I think this is a really good talking point to bring up. And you see these quarterbacks you know, just being complete generals at the line of scrimmage. And Josh Allen is that. But it's the recognition. It's understanding leverage where you're blocks will have good leverage advantages and where you'll have numbers advantages and where you can create some additional gaps where you have the defense outflanked. I do think that is part of what the Bills can do and Josh Allen can do as he evolves as a quarterback is to really master getting to the line of scrimmage and understanding your run calls and you know audibling into them and getting the right direction and, and leverage called. And so I don't think Josh Allen's bad at that. I just think it's something that is a good thing to identify as a growth opportunity. And I think this is a really good talking point. Nor Cal Bills fan is next. He says, why does it seem like Brian Dable is trying so hard the past few weeks to establish the run first, then incorporate the play action pass? Seems like we have much more success spreading defenses out with our wide receivers than once they are spread out, our run game becomes a factor. Well, I would point you back to the podcast yesterday where I really went in on Sean McDermott's desire for this offense to be two-dimensional. And I know that you asked this question before that podcast was available, but I really feel like the best way I can answer that is to point people back to yesterday. And um, I I think they're trying way too hard, trying way too hard to be a two-dimensional offense. And the Bills need to be able to run the ball effectively, but it is it is to the detriment because they don't do it that well and they don't necessarily have the guard play or the running backs for it to be a worthy option to take the ball out of Josh Allen's hands when he has such talent at wide receiver and the best thing the Bills do is throw the football. NorCal Bills fan continues and says, I could be mistaken, but Brian Dable has called passes to the running backs almost every opening drive the past few weeks, but Singletary and Moss are not speedsters and get run down by linebackers. Why not activate Brita for one game and give him some screen passes and swing passes? Seems like that's the whole reason we signed him. Linebackers can't catch him in the open field, and he's dangerous in space when our two starting running backs are not. Well, first of all, I think the reason Brian Dable has called a pass to the running backs, 
on the first drive of the game is to get Josh Allen a completion. Just f- let him find some rhythm. A little dump-down pass to a running back and um, just give him a completion. Now, as for that running back being Brita and not Singletary or Moss, I think the reality is, and something we have to accept, is that Matt Breida is not very good. Matt Breida couldn't crack the lineup for the Miami Dolphins last year, and they needed that type of skill set at running back. He can't crack the Bills lineup this year, and the Bills can use his skill set. I think we just have to accept that he's not that good of a player. And I know that he's fast, but if he can't make an impact, he can't make an impact. I would just do the same thing conceptually with Isaiah McKenzie instead of Matt Breida. And then NorCal Bills fan closes out his email by saying, am I just being a homer or is Tyler Bass competing for best kicker in the NFL right now? I'll tell you what, I'm glad the Bills have him. He's young and he looks really good. And I think what's most encouraging outside of him just being successful and making kicks is the way that his teammates talk about him and talk about his confidence and his mental makeup and his swag. I think that matters. I think it's good that the team, not just the coaches, but the players also have confidence in this guy, and he has the right mental makeup for life in the NFL as a kicker. Andy says, I think I'm developing a process of thinking of herd mentality questions prompted by something mentioned on the Draft Dudes podcast. Kind of off the wall, but would it make any sense at all or be feasible to bring back Wyatt Teller in free agency? It sure would fix the guard issues. Yeah, it would. You're not wrong about that. And uh, the Cleveland Browns are going to be hard-pressed to bring back Wyatt Teller. I'm sure they're going to want to, but he's going to be expensive. SpotRack estimates that Wyatt Teller's market value is a four-year, $44 million contract. That's an average annual value of $11 million. And so the Bills could do that. I wouldn't be opposed to it. It's pricey. It would definitely upgrade what the Bills have at guard and give them a mauler up front that's good in pass protection. But um, they have to ask themselves if they want to stomach that type of commitment to a guard. And if you were to move on from Feliciano and you know maybe move some, some salaries around, extend Cole Beasley, you can do different things. You can make this work. And I think it's a high priority. So... I'm never going to be opposed to the Bills going out and adding a good football player. And if they were able to just sign Teller in free agency, that'd be nice. In life, we're all bound for different things. With beachbound.com vacations, you could be bound for adventure, bound for passion, bound for discovery, or bound for togetherness, bound for immersion, bound for rejuvenation. Or maybe you might be bound for encountering the unexpected. Personally, When I'm at a beach resort, I'm bound to end up at the poolside bar or maybe creating my own taco flight. As long as I've got a good view and a good drink in my hand, I'll be as happy as can be. With Beachbound.com, you can find the perfect beach vacation for you, no matter what you are looking for. What are you bound for? Visit Beachbound.com today. The next one today comes from Greg, who says, I know you like technical questions for your podcast. What is the definition of a blitz? When you give the quarterback stats, is it just when more people rush than there are blockers or greater than five rushers? Other, just curious. And so, Greg, when I get that data, I pull it from Pro Football Focus. And Pro Football Focus defines blitzing as this. They say, 
There are many ways to define a blitz, but here we're defining it as someone pass rushing that the offense wouldn't expect to. For example, in a goal line situation, if there are six defensive linemen and they all rush the passer, that wouldn't count as a blitz. However, in a 3-4 defense, if a inside linebacker rushes instead of an outside linebacker, it is a blitz even though it is still potentially just a four-man rush. So that's where I get the data, and that's how they define what a blitz is. Next one today comes from Vin. Vin says, I was hoping to get your thoughts on how the game ended. Under two minutes, Miami has no timeouts, and Buffalo is still trying to score. I'm not complaining. They won me some money. It's just not what we see from this team usually, but I did like it. So, Vin, they actually took possession of the football with two minutes and 21 seconds left in the game. And so that's 141 total seconds. It was first and 10 from the Miami 11, and the Bills could only run off 120 seconds. There were still 141 seconds worth of game clock. And so the Bills needed to try to get a first down. And trying to get a first down gets them to the one-yard line. And so they put the nail in the coffin. They go ahead two scores. Josh gets the record for the most rushing touchdowns in the first 50 games of a career, tying Cam Newton's number. And so it was a win-win-win. But, yeah, they they couldn't mathematically run out the clock. So that's kind of what they had to do. CG says, how often do you hold your breath when Josh goes off script? I know it's part of what makes him special, but it's hard to watch and not feeling like it's going to hurt us at some point. Specifically, the first down run he had where he held the ball out with one hand like a baseball and also a couple of throws falling down to avoid sacks. We've seen these start to catch up with Patrick Mahomes, and I feel like it's only a matter of time until it happens to Josh, hopefully not at a critical point in our season. Anything he can do different, or is it just one of those things where the positive plays outweigh the negatives? I definitely feel the Bills have had some luck in the turnover department this year. Do you have any info on turnover-worthy plays, and is there any stat that measures the opposite? Big-time runs and throws off script. Thanks, and I'm happy we pulled out the ugly division win. Side note, since you mentioned him on Players to Watch, has Kenneth Walker entered the RB1 conversation? He absolutely has. Uh, That was a, a good idea for me to mention Kenneth Walker for that Michigan game, considering how he played. I think he had like 195 yards, five touchdowns, 7.81 yards after contact against Michigan. Big win for the Spartans. So I think he's absolutely entered that RB1 conversation. He might he might have claimed it. I'm not sure that there's a back I would rather have. So I think he is RB1 at this point. As for your question about Josh Allen going off script and my comfort level, I am very comfortable with it. I don't get nervous at all. Like, Back in 2018 and 2019, I did. I was so nervous that he was going to do something stupid with the football and throw it, throw an interception or something like that. But the sample size of him not doing that and the sample size of him making dynamic plays in those moments, you know, has grown significantly. And I, I honestly don't have any concern when Josh Allen works off script because he's so dynamic and makes so many good plays. Now, I felt the same way that you did on that run where Josh was kind of holding that ball out and, um, you know, pro football focus definitely docked him in terms of his fumble grade. I know he didn't fumble, but that's not taking care of the football very intelligently. And so they docked him uh, in that department. But, you know, pro football focus does measure turnover worthy plays and 
They currently have Josh down for 3.3% of the time, excuse me, 3.1% of the time having a turnover-worthy play, which is 14th in the NFL among quarterbacks that have attempted at least 80 passes, which is 35 of them. So 3.1%, 14th in the NFL. Number one is Jimmy Garoppolo at 5.6%. And dead last is Russell Wilson, who has a 0%. He has no turnover-worthy plays so far this year, according to Pro Football Focus. And so that's kind of the range. And so Josh Allen is middle of the pack when it comes to that. They also grade big-time throws. And they have Josh Allen 10th in the NFL with a big-time throw at 5.9% of his passes. Number one, Russell Wilson, 9.6%. And dead last is Jimmy Garoppolo at 1.1%. So how about that for some contrasting data? I actually looked that up as I was answering this question. And so I learned that information in real time. And so that was my authentic reaction to finding out (laughs) Jimmy G and where they slot. So that was fun to look up. The next one today comes from Chris, and Chris had a question going back to a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the AFC landscape and followed up, and it was regarding the Cleveland Browns, and this is kind of the follow-up email. Uh, Chris says, I know that they've had a couple of disappointing results referring to the Cleveland Browns and a lot of injuries so far this season, but I think that they have the the potential to match up well against the Bills. Given the personnel on that team, I think they could run a similar defensive scheme to the one that the Steelers successfully ran against us in week one and a similar offensive scheme to the one that the Titans successfully ran against us in week six. And so I think there's some some good points to be made here regarding the Bills and how they match up with Cleveland. Um, the Browns have a really good run offense, especially when they're healthy, but they're banged up right now. Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt at running back, they're banged up. And their offensive tackles have been injured as well. And I think Jack Conklin, their right tackle, is going to be out for the season. And so that's a big hit to their rushing attack. Um, But the Bills have fallen into that script. You saw it against Pittsburgh. You saw it against Tennessee where run-heavy offenses with a modest passing game that have a game record up front. And for Cleveland, that's obviously Miles Garrett. The Bills have had some, some challenges with those types of teams. Go to the Tennessee game. They run the football. They've got Jeffrey Simmons and Harold Landry. Go to the Pittsburgh game, and they like to run the football, and they had all those players, Cam Hayward and Melvin Ingram and T.J. Watt. And so, yeah, I do worry about the Bills falling into that script again. The Bills can absolutely handle the Cleveland Browns. They can handle the Tennessee Titans. They can handle the Pittsburgh Steelers. But I do think there is something to be said for the fact that they have fallen into those scripts twice so far this year. The next one today comes from Joe, who says, as the season changes, my question is related to warm versus cold weather players. A lot of discussion weekly goes into the advantage of a home game for the home team, especially teams with open air stadiums in the north. How much does this go into teams and scouts evaluation of players coming from college? For example, if the Bills were evaluating players and had two similar running backs on their radar, but one was from Arizona and played in Texas and the other from Wisconsin and played at Michigan State, would the weather familiarity make the Michigan State player more favorable? While I think this question initially seems obvious, my second part of the question is, does the research back this up? Aaron Rodgers being from California and playing at Cal, but succeeding in cold Green Bay seems the obvious flyer. I guess the question boils down to, do players drafted or traded out of their geographic area or comfort struggle in the pros. 
Joe, I love this question, and I don't have an easy answer for you, especially the second part. I definitely don't have any data to point to that says there is a correlation between geographically where these players are from and accustomed to playing football, where they go to the NFL, and how that impacts their ability to contribute. And as far as it being a factor at all in evaluation, you have to think that it could be used as a tiebreaker. But I will say this, the concentration of NFL talent is in the South. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't find good football players from all over the country. You can. But far and away, most of them come from the South, warm climates. And so I don't think you can reduce your sample size to not include that. Otherwise, you're going to miss out on the best players. And the reality is the Bills are never going to be able to assemble a roster that is overwhelmingly the majority of players coming from the North and accustomed to cold weather. That'll never be the case. And so with that in mind, the real advantage comes from the fact that they do live in it for a large portion of the year and they practice in it every day and they walk to their car and they're accustomed to being in those elements. And when you pull a team from Los Angeles or you pull a team from Miami or Jacksonville or Dallas and ask them to come to your place when they practice in where they are all week long and that's where they've lived for the last several months and all of a sudden for a three-hour period, they have to be at their peak performance in a climate that is completely uncomfortable. That's tough. And so despite the Bills players not necessarily being from the north in you know, cooler climates, the fact that they are there all week long and practicing it all week long and spend a good part of their year in it, that absolutely gives them an advantage. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us here today on the podcast. So many great questions this week. Thank you to everyone who took the time to send one in. And my apologies if I wasn't able to get to yours this week, but uh, hopefully the spirit of what you asked was answered at some point, either on the Monday podcast or in the questions that I was able to get to today. Uh, As for tomorrow, it's our comprehensive primer on the Jacksonville Jaguars as we turn our attention to the Bills' next opponent, their second trip to Florida. They have three trips to Florida this year, the next one coming on Sunday against the Jacksonville Jaguars, a really interesting football team. So we'll break them down tomorrow on the podcast and discuss the challenges that they present and what I think the Bills need to do to come away with their sixth win of the season. All right, folks, thanks so much for listening. I would love it if you took a second to rate, review, and share the podcast. Have a great rest of your day, and I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.